This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and today I'm joined by Jerry Gershenhorn, who's the Julius L. Chambers Professor of History at North Carolina Central University. We'll be discussing Gershenhorn's 2018 book with the University of North Carolina Press, Lewis Austin and the Carolina Times, and the book is soon to be released in paperback. Gershenhorn narrates the story of the long black freedom struggle in North Carolina from a new vantage point, using Austin's life and the history of the Carolina Times to shed new light on the vitality of black protest and the black press in the 20th century. Hey, Jerry, how are you doing today? Good, good to be with you. To start off with, would you be able to say a little bit about about Lewis Austin, the the main figure in your book, to our audience? Uh, who who is he? Why is his life important? Sure. So uh, Lewis Austin was the uh, publisher and editor of the Carolina Times, which was the Black News Weekly in Durham, North Carolina, and he uh, published a paper from 1927 to 1971, and he used the newspaper essentially as a vehicle to fight uh, what I call the long black freedom struggle in North Carolina and and really uh, throughout the nation. He was uh, definitely an advocacy journalist. He he saw the newspaper not just as a business, which was the case with some other black journalists, but he prioritized uh, focusing on the black freedom struggle, and he wanted to challenge racial segregation, racial oppression, and and racial injustice in, in really all ways. And in doing so, it, you know, it created a lot of hardships for him because it's difficult to, uh, to run a newspaper, which is, you know, based on advertising as well as subscriptions, when uh, a lot of times he was alienating his advertisers, both black and white, because he was uh, very quick to criticize both black and white officials and, uh, you know, leaders if he didn't think they were pursuing racial justice. Uh, so he's an incredibly important figure. And one of the things I, I was able to do in the book, I think, because he published and edited the paper from the 20s through the early 70s, is use the newspaper and the story of Lewis Austin and the newspaper as a way to track this long freedom struggle by African Americans going back to the period two or two and a half decades before the Brown versus Board of Education decision and the Montgomery bus boycott which is usually the point at which uh, popular versions of the civil rights movement start in the 1950s. But clearly, African-Americans were fighting against racial injustice well before that. And uh, many historians prior to myself have you know, made the same point, that the, this freedom struggle began uh, decades before. Many have uh, looked back to the Depression era. And so in, in doing so, I was able to... Uh, kind of do that. And also the, the movement goes beyond the 60s. Popular versions used to say that the movement ended with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968. But the movement went 
uh, beyond that, even though, of course, that was a, a terrible blow to the movement. Uh, and Austin, and then his successor, his daughter, took over the newspaper in 1971, continued to use it uh, as a vehicle to fight for racial justice in the 70s and beyond. So his paper, the Carolina Times, for listeners who perhaps not too familiar with the, the black press, names such as the Chicago Defender or the Pittsburgh Courier might potentially be familiar, um, but the Carolina Times probably isn't. How influential is the Carolina Times? Is it is it more a regional paper or does it develop a national audience? What kind of differences or, or similarities might there be in its focus and orientation compared to more well-known black papers of the period yeah uh yeah absolutely the the defender and the courier had much more of a national audience than the carolina times uh but another thing is what i what i want to do is uh highlight the role of the southern black press i mean some people are more familiar with the northern black press and and clearly the defender and the courier and baltimore afro-american and maybe the new york amsterdam news had a uh a larger circulation but the Southern black press, including uh, the Carolina Times, was very important in challenging racial injustice. Uh, and although the paper was printed in Durham, it was read widely throughout the state. And at various times, it was published in various places. Sometimes uh, there was an edition published in Charlotte, for example. So it was very important in the state of North Carolina, uh, not just in Durham. And as others have pointed out, Although the circulation uh, might have run from, I, may, I think it may have peaked at 20,000, 15 to 20,000. These newspapers were passed around and read by, uh, you know, by many individuals. So one newspaper could have been read by five. So its reach was much uh, further beyond its uh, you know, circulation numbers. So I think it was incredibly important in North Carolina. Austin himself was well known in the black community and among black, black leadership and black uh, journalists throughout the country. He spoke in many cities uh, in the Northeast as well as in the Southeast. So I think he had a, a pretty broad influence, but the lo- largest influence would definitely be within the state of North Carolina. I kind of situate him as a one of the key leaders, if not the key leader in this long black freedom struggle, if we take it back, you know, at least two decades before the, uh, the 50s. And North Carolina is a state that you, you're obviously very familiar with. How important was that context in terms of having a regional familiarity? Did that allow you to develop certain aspects of the book, perhaps more than it might have been if, if you were someone who was less familiar with the political and cultural context of North Carolina? Yeah, I think that was very important. Uh, I've I've taught uh, North Carolina history at uh, North Carolina Central University for probably close to 20 years now, and I've uh, published other articles, uh, some prior to the book about Lewis Austin, but also about uh, other aspects of civil rights struggle in North Carolina, about education, black education in North Carolina. Uh, so yeah, I'm fairly familiar with the the history of North Carolina and in particular African American history in North Carolina and the role of race. And so uh, that was certainly very helpful in putting it in context. And, you know, I had to kind of, in, in terms of researching the book, I had to look at a lot of different archival collections. Uh, one of the challenges in, in writing the book was that there is no Lewis Austin 
collection of papers. I mean, I don't have a manuscript collection. There's no archival collection of Austin's papers. When I wrote my first book, it was about an anthropologist named Melville Herskovitz. Uh, I had over 100 boxes of, uh, of correspondence and other records of, of Herskovitz's to, to use. But in this case, uh, the major source were the, was the newspapers themselves, uh, the editorials, as well as uh, the uh, articles that were reported on. But I was able to find a lot of information about Austin and people that he was involved with in some way, either working with or criticizing by looking at uh, collections uh, of political figures, black leaders, the NAACP papers, things like that. Yeah, Austin had had a huge impact in North Carolina, and it was uh, it was you know very helpful to to have this context of North Carolina. The other thing is that one of the things I try to do in the book is is tell the the story of this freedom struggle in North Carolina using the paper once again as a vehicle for that. And although Austin once again was headquartered in Durham, he reported on the entire state, and he reported extensively on Eastern North Carolina as well as the Piedmont. Uh, he was from Eastern North, uh, uh, Eastern North Carolina. He's from Enfield, a very small town in Halifax County. I think uh, fair to say that most African Americans during much of the run of the paper still lived in Eastern North Carolina in very rural settings. And those areas were incredibly oppressive toward African Americans. Some civil rights activists commented that uh, Eastern North Carolina was worse or as bad as Mississippi in terms of its uh, racial oppressiveness toward black people. So let's dig into that a bit more in terms of Austin's background. Um, so you mentioned he, he's, he's from Halifax County, and there's very much this culture of racist violence that's, that's part of, of that history. But then you also have, in some counties, majority black communities, and that leads itself to a certain degree of business power or, or at least opportunity. So how does Austin's experiences in, in Halifax County how does that feed into his his later role as a businessman and, and as a newspaper editor? Uh, well, I mean, I guess there's a, a few levels for that. I mean, his family was very important uh, in his upbringing. You know, I would I maintain that his family, and particularly his father, had a great influence on his uh, unwillingness to accept racial injustice and to accept inequality. Uh, Halifax County itself had a, a long history of black land ownership going back to the uh, Reconstruction era and also during Reconstruction and uh, even a little beyond the Reconstruction era into the late 19th century, there were black uh, political officials. Now, Austin wasn't born until 1898, which was the the year of the uh, Wilmington Race Massacre, an incredibly violent white supremacist attack on African-American politics and African-Americans in general, in which many blacks were killed in Wilmington. So he was born in a period of, you know, what the historian Rayford Logan called the nadir of African-American life post-emancipation. But the history of Halifax County uh, did provide at least a, a legacy of black business, black farm ownership, and black politics. And his father would have been growing up during that period. Uh, Austin told stories about his father who uh, ran a barbershop for whites and refused really to, to uh, accept disrespect uh, in a period in which uh, 
it was rare for African Americans to be addressed uh, or African American men to be addressed as Mr. Austin, for example. Uh, that was the case with his father, uh, whose name was William Austin. So, and he taught that to his son. There was one story that was told uh, to me by uh, Lewis Austin's daughter and his and grandson that when Lewis Austin was a young a young guy, uh, maybe seven eight years old, he was in his father's uh, barbershop, and he saw a bunch of his uh, some of the older kids going up to white customers and uh, walking up to them and saying, uh, "Shine, Captain Shine," you know, trying to uh, get some, uh, make some money by shining uh, some of the white customer's shoes. And Austin mimicked them and said the same thing. And his father immediately stopped in the middle of shaving a white customer and uh, reprimanded uh, Lewis, told him, no man is your captain. And, you, you know, you should never treat somebody as better than you. And that was a lesson that he he learned. And uh, I think it uh, something that he followed through the rest of his life. He was, re- you know, refused to accept inequality. He was a very uh, religious man. He was a, a Christian, came from a strong Christian background in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And he believed that everybody was equal before God and that uh, that guided him. So I think, uh, you know, his, his childhood had a, a big influence on him as well as where he was from. So Austin, he he goes to the, the National Training School in, in Durham, and then he ends up working for an, a black insurance firm in Durham. Uh, so how does he go from working at the insurance firm into owning and publishing the Carolina Times? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Lewis Austin came came to uh, Durham to go to the National Training School, which was the predecessor of North Carolina Central University in about uh, 1917, so during World War One. And at the National Training School, he met some of the people who would also becomes, uh, you know, major black businessmen. Uh, there was a strong black business community. Uh, North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance had been started in 1898 by uh, John Merrick and uh, Aaron Moore, uh, and had been they'd been soon uh, joined by C.C. Spaulding, who became uh, was really the longtime president uh, of the National North Carolina Mutual and uh, of other related black financial businesses like the Mechanics and Farmers Bank, which was founded in 1908. And Austin, after graduation, uh, worked as uh, in insurance for the North Carolina Mutual. And at the same time, he uh, around the same time, he was also working as a sports reporter for the Standard Advertiser, which was the name, predecessor name of the paper before it became the Carolina Times in 1926, which was the year before Austin bought the paper. So Austin was working both in insurance and uh, as a reporter, and uh, the paper had been started as the Standard Advertiser in 1921 by uh, kind of an itinerant actor, Started decided to get into the uh, newspaper business. His, his name was Charles Arendt, and uh, for he only ran the paper for a year because he had been running some investigative uh, pieces on uh, crime, African American crime. He was known as a, he was called in the newspaper a vice lord. This guy took exception to some of the things Arendt was writing about, and they ended up in a shootout. And uh, apparently they shot each other almost at the same exact time, and they both end up dying. Uh, subsequent to that, there were several uh, editors who ran the paper. And some of the people, black business people, felt that the the editor who was running it at about 1926 was was really not up to the task. Some said he was uh, 
somewhat of a drunk. And so the vice president of Mechanics and Farmers Bank, a guy named R.L. McDougald, who Austin knew, uh, suggested to Austin that he buy the paper. And he gave uh, a loan to Austin to purchase the newspaper. So Austin bought the paper in 1927. It's hard to know a, a whole lot about what the paper was doing in the late 20s and even into the early 30s, although I was able to ferret that out through other sources because the first newspapers that were microfilmed, or at least those that are still uh, available, uh, were in 1937. So the the uh, microfilm version of the newspapers of the Carolina Times starts in 1937. Uh, so from 27 to 37, that's another 10 years. I was able to get you know, snippets and bits and pieces uh, by looking at other newspapers, which sometimes reprinted uh, stuff that Austin wrote or articles from the Carolina Times or some of his editorials. And uh, there were also uh, people were often researching about Austin. So the stories were, were told about Austin. There was a really excellent uh, dissertation that was done by a sociologist named Harry Walker. And uh, he interviewed Austin extensively. And Austin talked about some of the things he was involved with in the, uh, in the late 20s and early 30s. So from those snippets and, and, the, and the bits of information you've been able to gather from, from the early period of, of Austin's ownership, how quickly is he able to remold the paper into his own vision of, of black protest or, or the role of, of the black newspaper? Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that it was pretty quickly, uh, uh, although I don't have that much on the late 20s, but by the early 30s, he was very active in voting rights and voter registration campaigns and forming organizations and filing lawsuits. Uh, in 1932, he helped form the North Carolina Independent Voters League and organize a, st- a statewide conference. And that year was really a pivotal year in uh, in Durham and in North Carolina in terms of the black freedom struggle because Austin and others, there was another prominent uh, leader at the time, a guy named uh, Robert McCance Andrews. Andrews was an attorney, and Andrews and Austin worked together to try to promote black voter registration. And uh, as many people will uh, know, African-Americans going back to the Reconstruction era had been Republicans because the Republican Party was the party that supported the, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to abolish slavery grant equal citizenship for African-Americans and voting rights. But by the uh, 1930s, in the midst of the Great Depression, the Republican Party hadn't really done much for African-Americans and and had been moving away from overt support for African-Americans' rights. And under uh, Herbert Hoover, President Hoover, uh, the Depression was getting worse and worse, and uh, unemployment was rising, and African-Americans were disproportionately suffering. So Austin and Andrews and some others decided that it was time for African-Americans to uh, reject the Republican Party and try to influence you know, the election of more candidates who were more sympathetic to African-Americans. Uh, by this time, the, the South was essentially a one-party region. Democrats dominated. Whoever won the Democratic primary would win the general election. The Republicans really had uh, almost no power in North Carolina. In 1900, the literacy test, poll tax, and grandfather clause had been passed, which had pretty much eliminated black voting. But in 1920, the poll tax was repealed in North Carolina, and African Americans in the 1920s started to make some moves to increase black voter registration. So in 1932, when Austin, and he was also uh, supported by the uh, black editor of the uh, 
newspaper in uh, in Raleigh, a newspaper called the uh, uh, then it was called the Carolina Tribune. Today it's the Carolinian. It was edited by a, a guy named uh, Hugo Fontelio Nanton, and Nanton had worked for Austin prior to that. So Nanton, Austin, Andrews pushed for black voter registration as Democrats, and they they got tremendous pushback from people like Josephus Daniels, who was the editor of the Raleigh News and Observer, the white daily newspaper. And Daniels wrote editorials uh, daily attacking uh, black voter registration and especially black voter registration in the Democratic Party. And he evoked invoked the uh, 1898 Wilmington Race Massacre, which he had helped to, uh, if not promote, he definitely promoted white supremacy and attacks on black voting and uh, certainly did not oppose the use of violence against African-Americans at that time. And, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, the level of white opposition to black registration in the Democratic Party was a good, gives you a good sense of how significant this was and how threatened whites felt by the actions that Austin's and other, others were taking. And they did succeed in registering, uh, you know, African-Americans and the numbers uh, increased uh, during the 30s in 1935, the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs was a, was formed, which became a very important organization in terms of uh, black ro- voter registration, black political influence, and uh, you know challenges to uh, racial injustice. And Austin was one of the founders of that organization. Uh, in 1933, he was one of the architects of the first uh, legal challenge to segregated higher education in the South when he, along with black attorneys Conrad Pearson and Cecil McCoy, were able to find an African-American student who wanted to go to pharmacy school. There was no pharmacy school at uh, any of the black schools in North Carolina, but there was one at UNC Chapel Hill, which was all white. And so they filed a lawsuit to desegregate UNC Chapel Hill in 1933. And that was really the first step toward the Brown versus Board of Education decision, the landmark decision that mandated uh, desegregated public education. And Austin isn't just involved in in political organizing or or attempting to get black elected officials into office. He also actually wins an election himself. He becomes a justice of the peace in in Durham. Um, And this this is celebrated by, by the black newspapers as a really significant moment in terms of black electoral politics in, in North Carolina. So how exactly does Austin manage to get elected and, and what is his, his role and, and influence? Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, it was kind of a, a clever move by uh, Austin and uh, uh, it was actually him and uh, a friend of his named Frederick Watkins, who was uh, kind of a self-styled movie king. He was an operator of black movie theaters in Durham and actually in other parts of North Carolina as well. And uh, in 1934, uh, they were both elected justices of the peace. And at that time, the rule for the elections was there was like a quota. So there had to be a certain number of justices per a certain number of people in a, uh, in a city. So apparently the quota was unmet. So right before the filing deadline, Austin and, and Watkins filed for uh, the positions. And because they filed so late, there was no opposition. So that's how they were able to get elected. The Pittsburgh Courier said that uh, their election, and they were elected as Democrats. They said this was the beginning of the New Deal in the South because uh, I'm not sure if there were other cases. There may have been some, but it was very rare for an African-American to be elected as a Democrat. 
or almost anything in the South at that point. I mean, it would be another uh, almost 20 years before the first African-American would be elected to the city council, for example, in Durham. But they were elected and, they, and he served as justice of the peace. And so he would uh, handle, uh, you know, traffic cases and stuff like that. One time there was a, a traffic accident and uh, the white, the driver who was, uh, you know, was uh, at fault in the accident. He, he appeared before Austin and he said, and he, you know, when he saw it was a black judge, he says, no, I'm not going to have my case before a black judge. So Austin said, oh, that's fine. I'll send you to Watkins. So of course, another black judge. So he did, he served in that position. And he, so that was uh, uh, the first case where African-Americans were elected to public office in the 20th century in, in Durham. So Austin is, you know, he's established himself as an uncompromising Quite, quite militant editor, public figure. Um, he's also someone who, in his personal life, is is not willing to step back. Um, there's there's one anecdote you tell. I think it's in the early forties when when a, a white man forces Austin's wife off the off the pavement, and Austin ends up punching this guy, and there's he has to kind of get rushed away and, and taken away before something else can happen to him. How does Austin navigate that role? You know, he's he's someone who's outspoken, who's quite militant, um, but also he, at the same time, is trying to protect himself and trying to keep himself and his family alive within the racist culture of of North Carolina during the interwar period. Yeah, he was he was often threatened. Uh, you know, he had crosses burned in front of his house, threatening phone calls. Ku Klux Klan threatened him. And, you know, it's the question often asks me is how did he survive in that period of, uh, you know, where white violence was widespread. But he did have a lot of supporters. He had people who had his back. You know, there was one case where uh, somebody threatened him, a white individual. It's not clear who, but threatened him and told him he should leave town. And uh, he went down to confront the individual and said, uh, you know where to find me. And and that night uh, the story was that uh, he was uh, he was in his house, and he heard some noise on his front porch, and it turned out it was some of his friends who uh, were standing guard and on his front porch, uh, you know, and they had rifles, so he had a lot of supporters, and he did have support also among the uh, the black uh, middle class during this period. The black business community had a kind of you know a kind of certain relationship with the white business community in which the black business community wouldn't push too hard for change. I would call them gradualists. You know, they did try to uplift the black community, but they did not challenge segregation and and that sort of thing. And uh, they tried to deal with racial tensions by negotiating behind the scenes. This was something that Austin rejected. He, he, uh, He refused to, uh, you know, go along with gradualism. But, but the fact of the matter was, I think that because uh, the black business community had a kind of uh, this relationship with the white business community, he had these black business people also supporting him. And that may have helped him as, as well, because many, many black newspaper men and women, you know, in the South during this period and prior to this, you know, suffered uh, immensely. I mean, if you go back to the late 19th century, uh, Ida B. Wells was the editor of the Memphis Free, Free Speech. You know, when she uh, wrote about the lynchings of her friends who had operated a grocery store in uh, competition with a white grocer, white grocer, and they were lynched, 
uh, she was essentially forced out, you know, left and went to Chicago. So, um, and that was not the only case. So, so African-American journalists, especially in the South had to be incredibly courageous. And, uh, and Austin absolutely was, he was fearless by, by almost all accounts. And then during uh, World War II in particular, Austin is not only navigating um, local backlash and, and pressures from, from whites within Durham and North Carolina, but also he comes under increasing surveillance um, on a national level. And, and you talk in the book about the FBI and also the IRS relentlessly auditing the Carolina Times. Um, so how, how exactly did national agencies or national forces try to, to curtail or to push back against Austin during that period? Yeah, he was, he was under FBI surveillance. Uh, uh, it's interesting from the standpoint of sources. I mentioned that uh, the newspaper uh, that were microfilmed started in 1937, but they were not, it's not a complete run. So they were, uh, I think it was almost no newspapers available from 1944 through 48. But I ordered the FBI uh, file on Austin, which was fairly thick. He was under surveillance throughout World War II. And the FBI, uh, I think, did a pretty good job of copying down his editorials. And so they had a number of his editorials from the 1940s when they had him under surveillance, which were ended up being uh, pretty good sources of what Austin was trying to do during that time and, and challenging uh, you know, injustice during that period. But the FBI had him under surveillance. Uh, his daughter told me that they, they were being wiretapped uh, during that period. The FBI actually, there was a, a danger that the FBI would suppress the black press almost across the board. And so the FBI was uh, surveilling the post office. There were surveillance of uh, many black newspapers during that period. Only, as it turned out, only a few small papers were confiscated. They, they weren't allowed to... Uh, use the, the mails to send their newspapers. But at some point, the FBI backed off. And uh, I think at the behest of the attorney general, and a decision was made not to suppress the black press because the, the federal government saw the black press as uh, stirring up black opposition to uh, federal, you know, federal policies and causing uh, division within the war. And of course, all the black press was asking for is uh, for the federal government to treat African-Americans equally. Uh, and, you know, as you can imagine, many African-Americans were not too keen on fighting for the United States Army, United States government, supposedly to uh, spread democracy around the world when they faced such an entrenched system of, uh, of racial oppression and denial of democracy. Uh, during this period, as I mentioned, throughout the South, African-Americans were regularly denied the right to vote. It was, a, you know, a situation where the federal government wanted to keep any type of uh, opposition to, uh, you know, as small as possible. But Austin refused to back down. Some newspapers actually, after meeting with federal government officials, did kind of temper their editorial stance, but Austin refused to do so. And you can see that in the editorials. He, he was very strongly during World War II in support uh, of the March on Washington movement, which was uh, a movement started by A. Philip Randolph, African-American uh, labor leader, leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeper Car Sleeping Car Porters. Randolph was trying to, uh, well, he was challenging racial segregation in the armed forces, but also trying to get uh, President Franklin Roosevelt to issue an executive order uh, ending racial discrimination in employment at defense contractors. And Austin was one of the few uh, black 
leaders or activists who supported that movement in North Carolina. So uh, he also was a, a, the biggest supporter of uh, the Double V campaign, which was a campaign popularized by the Pittsburgh Courier, which was to, yes, support U.S. efforts against the Axis powers in the war, but also to fight for victory against uh, racial oppression at home. So in other words, not to uh, defer the movement against uh, racial injustice till after the war, which some African-Americans, including W.E.B. Du Bois, did in World War I. And then um, the Double V campaign and African-American activism during World War II really sets a, a platform for the, the emergence of the, of the post-war black freedom struggle. Um, so as you, as you eloquently detail in your book, for Austin, this is, a, this is a struggle that he's been actively involved in for most of his life. But what happens post-World War II and, and how specifically does Austin use the Carolina Times to, to give voice or a platform to that, that developing struggle, um, either in, in North Carolina or, or on a national level? Yeah, the, the post-war, I mean, as you say, World War II was a pivotal era in terms of uh, the Black uh, Freedom Movement, you know, the March on Washington Movement, which is a predecessor to the, the more famous 1963 March on Washington, which was also organized, at least in part, by A. Philip Randolph. And uh, post-World War II, the period, the kind of uh, nine-year period prior to the Brown versus Board of Education decision was also uh, incredibly important. In 1945, Austin ran for the city council, and that was the first time an African-American had run for the city council in Durham in the 20th century. Uh, He didn't win, but it was important because it kind of mobilized the black electorate. During this period, uh, black voting was increasing. And uh, by the late 1940s, uh, African-Americans joined with liberal whites and, uh, and uh, labor activists in, in, in Durham to form uh, voters for better government. And the voters for better government was kind of a black uh, liberal white coalition. And Austin was uh, quite supportive of that movement. And that movement actually led to the election of uh, R.N. Harris, who was a black businessman who was elected to the city council in Durham in 1953, you know, which is significant because that's 12 years before the uh, Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. Uh, so African-Americans were becoming increasingly influential in terms of politics. In 1947, the same year that Jackie Robinson broke the color line in Major League Baseball, uh, Austin organized the first integrated football game, the first integrated football game in the South, according to most sources when he organized a football game between a black team from Washington, D.C. and a white team from Philadelphia uh, that was played uh, right in Durham. He was also uh, continuing to work with the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs and also uh, a statewide group called the North Carolina Committee on Negro Affairs, which was uh, increasing the number of African-Americans elected. So even when blacks were not elected, they were getting more sympathetic uh, whites uh, elected to to either city office or sometimes to statewide office. You know, some people have said that North Carolina was more moderate, or some would say more progressive. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't support that view, but they were in some ways more moderate than some uh, deep South politicians. And I think part of that, a, a good part of that, may be the increasing black vote, which was able to uh, elect some you know, less virulent racists to public office. So he continued to be quite active in the uh, late 40s and early 50s in voting rights. He also promoted 
desegregation of buses. There were a number of challenges, even going back to the 1930s, where uh, often African-American women uh, refused to move to the back of buses, and he supported them. There was a case of uh, someone who's well-known here in uh, Durham in North Carolina, a woman named Pauli Murray, who was a black attorney, who was uh, very pivotal in the civil rights struggle, women's rights movement. Uh, And she was a friend of uh, Lewis Austin. In fact, she worked for the newspaper when she was quite young. And uh, Pauli Murray was on a bus in uh, Petersburg, Virginia. And uh, at one point, she refused to to stay in the back of the bus because I think one of the seats was broken. And she was arrested. And Austin wrote about her and backed her uh, resistance to uh, bus segregation. So he was working uh, through a lot of avenues, challenging segregation. Of course, he was also challenging segregation in schools, both the higher education and primary and secondary schools as well. In 1951, a case was brought by a number of African-Americans uh, called Blue versus uh, Board of Education, which was not an integration case. It was a case challenging the inequality of black schools in the Durham uh, public school system. And the case actually was successful uh, in 1951. In fact, if that case had become an integration case, uh, some locals argue that instead of Brown versus Board of Education being known as the landmark case, it would have been blue. So Austin was moving along a lot of different fronts during that period. And one thing that Austin really characterizes his adult life is, is not just his political activism and his, his role in political organizing, but also his political independence. So during the, the 40s and into the 50s and, and 60s, he's, you know, he affiliates and disassociates himself from different political parties, um, whether it's the Progressive Party or the Democratic Party um, or the Republican Party. How does Austin understand party politics, do you think? And, and how does he strategically try and use different party platforms to, to advance black rights? Yeah, Austin's Austin's focus, of course, was was uh, racial equality and, and racial justice. So he supported the political party that he felt would give the best chance for that. So as I mentioned, in 1932, he broke from the Republican Party and supported the Democratic Party. And the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs, as I mentioned before, they generally would support the Democratic Party uh, through that period and even later. But in 1956. Uh, Austin broke with the Democrats and supported the Republicans because in the aftermath of the Brown versus Board of Education decision, this movement by Southern white supremacists to, you know, I think it was, it was called massive resistance to resist public school integration. And so these white Democrats in the South, including those in North Carolina, primary their primary focus was to challenge segregation or challenge integration. And so Austin basically had enough of these white politicians in North Carolina and the South. And even at the presidential level, uh, when Adlai Stevenson, who was known as sort of a liberal Democrat, but on the issues of, of the South and uh, you know, Southern Democrats, he did not uh, speak out against segregation. So Austin uh, decided to reject the Democratic Party at that point, and he backed the Republican Party. In fact, he was present at the inauguration of Dwight D. Eisenhower for president in 56. So one of his friends, a history professor at uh, what was then North Carolina College named Helen Edmonds, 
uh, became the first African-American to second the nomination of a presidential candidate at a nominating convention when she not, she uh, seconded the, the nomination of, uh, of Eisenhower. And uh, Austin and his wife actually went to the, went to the uh, inauguration. But he, he didn't stay really with the Republican Party consistently uh, after that. So it depended on who was, uh, who was running, wh- who was a candidate. In 1960, for example, the Carolina Times supported uh, Terry Sanford, who was a Democrat. Of course, during this period, as I mentioned, uh, Republicans had no chance to win statewide office uh, in North Carolina. So it was still the case uh, in the late 50s and early 60s if a Demo- uh, whoever won the Democratic primary was going to be the, the winning candidate for the, in the general election. But Terry Sanford in 1960 ran for governor as a, a more moderate Democrat, even though he, he still backed uh, segregation of public schools for the most part and supported the efforts by the General Assembly to keep the schools uh, for the most part segregated. Uh, but he was much less... He wasn't the virulent racist that his opponent, a guy named I. Beverly Lake, was, who was more uh, more like uh, someone like George Wallace of Alabama, who was the guy who said segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Uh, so he would support moderate Democrats uh, into the 60s, and he supported President Johnson in 64. Uh, to go back a little bit, you mentioned the Progressive Party in 1948. Austin and a number of people in Durham, a number of uh, black activists in Durham, supported uh, Henry Wallace, who had been uh, Harry Truman's vice president and had been a secretary of commerce before that. Wallace had come out strongly against segregation. And so uh, Austin uh, supported Wallace. And he actually ran uh, for a state representative on the the Progressive Party platform. So uh, he, he looked for, you know, the most strategic way he could to try to uh, buttress the black freedom movement. And so he was at times a Democrat, at times a Republican, and at times a progressive. In fact, when he was a Republican, he was able to use his influence in the Republican Party to get African-Americans hired as postal workers in Durham at the post office. So he he was, you know, he was number one looking for, you know, the fight for racial uh, justice and, uh, you know, whichever party he felt could move that forward, he was going to support that one. And into the 60s, as, as the movement's starting to change, strategies or tactics are starting to change. So um, North Carolina, Greensboro, of course, is the beginning of the, of the sit-in movement, or at least that's how it's commonly recognized. Where does Austin sit within these generational tensions that, that we often see between a more established, but perhaps more conservative old guards of the NAACP and, and other organizations who, who prefer to take the um, legal or political approach and then a younger generation of who are um, more connected to direct action, direct protest in, in a different sense. Now, Lewis Austin, uh, you know, certainly bridged the generational gap because he really joined with this new generation of young uh, college students and even sometimes high school students who emerged in the 1960s. And even really before that, in, in 1957, Austin was one of the few black leaders, or at least older black leaders in Durham, who backed the Royal Ice Cream sit-in, which was a, a sit-in that was uh, led by a pastor in Durham named uh, Reverend Douglas Moore. Uh, and he and six uh, young black men and women mounted a sit-in at uh, an ice cream parlor in which uh, the facilities were segregated. Uh, in 1957, and he was one of the few. Uh, the Durham Committee on Negro Affairs posed that 
uh, sit-in. They felt it was it was too much at that time, too fast, uh, that Durham wasn't ready for it. And Austin, in fact, a story that was told to me by one of the uh, the uh, Royal Ice Cream Seven, as they were called, a woman named Virginia Williams, who participated in that sit-in, as she told me that Austin, as soon as he heard about the sit-in, he rushed down to the jailhouse to try to bail out the, uh, the, the seven who were arrested. And he was very disappointed when uh, somebody else got there before him to bail him out. Uh, but he, he would, became a confidant and an advisor to many of the uh, young uh, protesters in the 60s after the Greensboro sit-in started uh, on February 1st of 1960, you know, led by the, the four uh, young students from North Carolina A&T. Uh, Austin was asked, uh, the, the students at North Carolina College in Durham, they were, uh, had heard about it, and they were planning a sit-in the, the following week. They were going to start it on uh, February 8th. And one of the leaders, uh, one of the student leaders went to Austin, who they uh, knew, and asked him for advice. And he, he told them to definitely go through with it and, and, and move forward. And, of course, they did. And that sit-in by the Durham students, uh, you know, I would argue, was very important because if you think about a sit-in uh, becoming a movement, if the first sit-in is important, but if others don't follow, there's no movement. The Royal Ice Cream sit-in is not remembered today by many because it was a one-off sit-in. It was not a follow-up. In other words, uh, people in Greensboro and Raleigh and other cities didn't follow. But in the case of uh, the Greensboro sit-ins in, in February of 1960, within a week, uh, students in Durham, students in Raleigh, uh, from other black colleges like Shaw University and St. Augustine's uh, University, uh, they continued. So the sit-in spread to cities uh, across North Carolina and eventually uh, cities around the South. And it, you know, kind of reestablished the movement, which had been, some would argue, in a, in a period of kind of uh, stasis uh, in the late 50s. So uh, uh, that was particularly important. Also in the 1960s, Austin published the, the names of white businesses that refused to hire African-Americans as clerks. And this was part of a boycott. And so the community knew who to boycott. And this put pressure on these businesses. And once they would hire, and they, they did start to do that. And of course, you could, you could trace this back to the 1930s when Austin had been leading protests by African-Americans to uh, boycott the grocery stores in Durham that didn't hire African-Americans and actually succeeded in getting stores like AMP and Kroger's to hire black, uh, uh, black employees in the, in the early 1930s and mid-1930s. So Austin uh, was very involved uh, in the 1960s as an advisor to the, many of the students. In fact, many of the students didn't feel they had much support among the older black leadership. But Austin was one who was absolutely, uh, uh, they could count on. Uh, there were others too. John Wheeler, uh, who was a, a businessman and the, uh, uh, the, became the president of the Mechanics and Farmers Bank and also the uh, head of the Durham Committee by that time, the Durham Committee was becoming more supportive and did support the 1960s sit-ins. So he, um, Austin is, is is clearly a quite strong ally to to younger students and activists involved in in the sit-in movement and other direct action protests during the early 60s. Um, but his relationship in in the the last five or so years of his life to the emergence of Black Power is is a little bit more complicated. So could you speak to that? Yeah, he Austin. Uh, would editorialize against the Black Panther Party, for example, 
And uh, even SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, when SNCC became more black power oriented and more black nationalist oriented uh, by the late 60s, Austin was not a separatist or a uh, nationalist. He did not support nationalism. He was an integrationist. And he also spoke out against the use of, uh, of violence. So he was opposed uh, armed self-defense. Well, you know, that, this, this is also complicated because he was someone who's defended himself, as, as you mentioned in one of your questions, when Austin uh, defended uh, his wife when, uh, you know, on a street uh, in, in downtown Durham. Uh, he, he was not averse to self-defense personally. I mean, there was actually another case where he went down to one of the sit-ins. He went down to uh, one of the sit-ins in 1960 at Woolworth with one of his friends, a journalist named Alex Rivera, photographer and journalist named Alex Rivera. And they went down uh, to the sit-in to see, and uh, when they got there, and this is uh, from Rivera's recollection, uh, they sat there a couple of seats uh, at the lunch counter that were vacant. And so Austin said, let's sit down. So Austin sat down and almost immediately uh, uh, one of the uh, white segregationists who was there poured something hot on Austin's head, coffee or soup or something. And Austin jumped up, started yelling and said, you see those guys over there on that end and those on the other end? They're nonviolent. I'm violent as hell. And uh, nothing actually happened. You know, they left. I think Rivera got him out of there. But personally speaking, Austin would not, you know, was not averse to defending himself. And of course, that was the case with uh, with many uh, civil rights activists. Even uh, you know, many have uh, pointed out that nonviolence was often a tactical, a tactical stance, not necessarily a philosophical stance. Although it was philosophical for some and tactical for some as well. Uh, but Austin did oppose, as I mentioned, the Black Panther Party, and he, he felt like that was not the way to go. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there was a local leader uh, named Howard Fuller, who was quite close to Austin. And Fuller was seen as a black power advocate in in Durham and someone who spoke using the rhetoric of, uh, you know, more militant or more violent, or at least violence in the, uh, you know, in terms of self-defense. And he would would say those types of things like, we're not going to turn the other cheek, or the next time someone attacks us, we're not going to turn the other cheek and you'll see a fist. And Austin was very supportive of Fuller. And, you know, he was a, an advisor to Fuller. Uh, Howard Fuller told me uh, that Austin, you know, was one of the leaders who he looked to for support. And when Fuller was was uh, was under attack, you know, for uh, some of the things he said or, or some of the things he did, Austin would come to defend him very quickly. So uh, some have said that Austin, you know, just opposed you know, black power or the younger generation or the, in the late sixties. But I think that's, as you said, it's more complicated than that. And Austin, he passes away in, in 1971. What kind of impact does his, his passing have um, in terms of the, the Carolina times specifically, but also the black community within Durham and, and across North Carolina? Well, it absolutely was a huge loss to the movement, uh, both in Durham and throughout the state. It was a huge loss for the Carolina Times, obviously a huge loss for his family. But after Austin died, the paper didn't die. The paper would continue uh, to flourish. In fact, uh, some people have argued that, you know, with the coming of integration, uh, and of course, it is true that many black institutions 
were not able to survive. If you think about uh, the Negro leagues in terms of baseball, you know, some black businesses, but Austin's newspaper, the Carolina Times was then taken over by his daughter, Vivian Edmonds. And if you look back at the papers in the 70s and 80s, she really followed through on his, you know, his program. The motto of the paper was the truth unbridled, and she continued to give them the truth. And uh, she continued to support uh, the continued movement in the 70s. I mean, in fact, in the in the late 70s, they had uh, a kind of uh, investigative uh, pieces about police brutality, which was widespread then, just as it is today, against Blacks in many places throughout the country. Uh, she focused on Durham. She was also opposing, uh, you know, by this time, urban renewal had devastated the part of uh, the black community known as Haiti, and she was holding out against, uh, they were trying to get the newspaper to move and sell their business so they could uh, uh, build the Durham Freeway, which runs through Durham and actually ran through the black community. And in 1978, uh, a fire occurred at the Carolina Times and burned the building to the ground. Um, by all accounts, it was likely arson. And she believed this is Vivian Edmonds, uh, Lewis Austin's daughter, who was running the paper. She believed that it was a result of uh, the pieces they were doing on police brutality and perhaps their resistance to moving from uh, their building or sell their building to the urban renewal authorities. Uh, so, so yeah, the, the paper continued to flourish. In fact, the, the paper, uh, and economically, I think business-wise, it was doing pretty well because uh, the newspaper had grown to was about uh, 16 to 24 pages by that time, which is an indication that they were able to get uh, advertising to support it. After she gave up, uh, she retired, and uh, uh, her son, uh, Kenneth Edmonds, ran the paper. In fact, it, it's very sad. Kenneth Edmonds, who ran the paper from 2002 till this year, he passed away last month. And it's not clear that the paper will be able to continue. So the paper, which has been uh, has been in the the Austin Edmonds family since 1927, so for 93 years, uh, and uh, you know has been an amazing voice for the black community, especially early on when when many African Americans had didn't have much opportunity to have their voice heard, but even today, and so uh, many many people in the community are trying to. Uh, see if they can get the Carolina Times back up and running. 